Well, good morning, everybody. It is really wonderful to see you here this morning. You know, Eddie mentioned that he was at the men's retreat. I know some of our staff men were there this past weekend. I was uh, bummed because this was the first men's retreat I've had to miss in my entire time here at our church for the last 11 years. And uh, it just so happened that the same weekend we were moving Amanda into her new apartment. She starts her junior year at Cal Poly San Luis Obispo tomorrow. So we were moving her in uh, this past weekend. Um, But, you know, I was uh, messaging our guest speaker at the men's retreat this morning. He's a personal friend of mine. We served together in ministry uh, years ago. We went to the same undergrad school together, Go Bruins. And, uh, and so I was messaging him this morning, and I was thanking him for speaking to our men. And I was bummed that I wasn't able to be there. And uh, he wrote back early this morning, And by the way, our men are probably on their way back right now as we speak. They're probably on the road from Ironwood, Newberry Springs. And I've heard that they've had an amazing time. I've seen pictures on our Facebook page. And it's been a a, a wonderful time for the men this past weekend. But I thought I'd share with you a bit of uh, the guest speaker's message to me this morning. And I hope this encourages you. And I'm going to share this with the men, too, when I see them. But they're not here right now, so you'll get to hear this. But he wrote back to me after I thanked him. He said this, Tim, what a great group of guys. I truly enjoyed my time with them. It's amazing to see 15 to 71-year-old men with varying backgrounds fellowship in Christ together. And then he said that, uh, now of course my friend, he and his family, they live quite a bit from here in Diamond Bar. But he closed out his message by saying this, I wish my family were closer because we would want to be part of your church community. I mean, that, that is uh, the, the, the greatest encouragement that a pastor could receive from a guest speaker who spent a weekend with men. And uh, I've just heard that it's been an amazing time. And again, I saw pictures of the men hiking up Soldier Mountain to a cross up in the desert, high desert. And it's just, a, I'm, I'm sad that I got to, or I had to miss it, but I know they had an amazing time. And for you uh, wives and moms who took care of the kids all weekend long while your husbands were away, thank you, thank you, thank you. Well, you know that our leaders want to pray for you. And we are eager to pray for you every week. And so you know that after service each week, you have the opportunity to share a prayer request with our leaders and to be prayed for. And we encourage you to uh, go gather by the cross after service is over to share a prayer request. And they can pray for you on the spot. But also, we want to pray for you throughout the week. And so if you want, you can write down your prayer request on this connection card. You'll find these cards on the tables in the back. And it says here, how can we pray for you this week? Write down your prayer request, write down your name, drop them in the offering box, and we'll make sure that our leaders pray for you uh, throughout the course of the week. Because we know that prayer works and God wants to answer our prayers according to his will. And so we encourage you to share your prayer request with us. All right, if you were with us last Sunday, or maybe if you heard last Sunday's uh, service online, you know that we began to unpack Mark chapter 13. Last week was part one of this mini two-part message within the grander scope of this lengthy series called Servant King. And last week, The title of my message was Jesus and the Future, Part 1. Guess what today's title is? (laughs) Jesus and the Future, Part 2. All right, and we're going to continue to unpack Mark chapter 13, and we'll look at all uh, 37 verses between last week and this week. For those of you who are newer to this series, I just want to give you a very brief recap. Mark has laid out for us in his gospel this three-act drama. Very distinct. And each act is very clearly laid out for us. Act one takes place in a region called Galilee. 
And that's chapters 1 through 8a. And in Act 1, the crowds follow Jesus. They witnessed him performing miracles and healings, casting out of demons. And they ask the question, who is this Jesus? They marvel at his miracles. That's Act 1. In Act 2, which takes place from Galilee on the way to where? Jerusalem. There's another group asking a different question. Who is asking the question? The disciples. And their question was, what does it mean for Jesus to be the Messiah? You see, because they see the crowds marvel at Jesus, but then they notice Jesus, he keeps talking about his death. If you've ever been around people who talk about dying, it can be depressing. Okay? And so that's kind of how it felt for the disciples. Wait, why is this leader who we dropped everything to follow, who is supposed to lead us into a revolt against the evil Roman government, why is he talking about dying? So they begin to ask the question, wait a minute, what does it mean for Jesus to be the Messiah? Because the answer to that question doesn't only impact Jesus' future, it also impacts their own future. Wait a minute. If Jesus is on his way to his death, what does that mean for us? Act 3 takes place in Jerusalem, and that's chapters 11 through 16, and we're right in the thick of Act 3. And the focus of Act 3 is on the paradox of Jesus becoming king. And in Act 3, Mark chapter 13, which we began last Sunday, Jesus sat down with his disciples on the Mount of Olives, and he began talking to them about the future. Are you familiar with the phrase, hindsight is 2020? You know that phrase, what that means is, well, hindsight refers to looking back, reflecting on the past. 2020 is what most of us don't have anymore, which is perfect vision. I know we have some optometrists here at our church, and they probably see a lot of you because we no longer have 2020 vision. Once upon a time, I prided myself on having 2020 vision. Now I have to sneak on some reading glasses every now and then. But here's the thing, 2020, perfect vision, it really only applies to the past. Because okay? you never hear, oh, a future is 2020. Hindsight is always 2020, meaning that we look back on events and we see things clearly now that we didn't see clearly then. So the reason why I mention that is this. One day in the future, we're going to look back on all the difficult passages in the Bible, they'll all make sense sometime in the future, even if they don't make all the sense in the world to us right now. And Mark chapter 13 is one of those chapters that it's so hard to understand. In fact, I'm going to say this, that Mark 13, and in particular, the portion that we're going to cover today, is considered by many scholars to be amongst the most difficult passages in all of the New Testament, if not the most difficult passages to understand. And last week, we introduced you to some important terms. We're going to review those terms for the next few minutes, and then we'll introduce some more terms before we actually open up to the book of Mark. Now, I know we have some students in here right now, and so for a time, this might sound like a college lecture, okay? So don't fall asleep. But if you do fall asleep, just nod this way, all right? Just, just, yes, just agree with me. You can close your eyes and just nod, make sure you're nodding this way. So I think that you're agreeing with me. But it's important to understand these terms because these terms will serve as a backdrop to Mark 13. The first term we introduced last Sunday was the word eschatology. Eschatology comes from the Greek word eschatos. Eschatos 
means last. So eschatology is a study of last things. And if you were here last Sunday, do you remember I said not all Christians agree on how the last things will unfold? There are godly people who love Jesus, who are committed to doing God's will, who just simply don't agree on how the end times will unfold. That's why we said last week that eschatology is an in-house discussion, meaning that as believers, as followers of Jesus, no matter what we believe about the future events, we can and should continue to fellowship with one another because this is an in-house discussion. And because it's an in-house discussion, it's important to have this spirit of humility whenever we talk eschatology because the reality is this. I am confident of one thing today. None of you has all the answers. And I'm even more confident that I don't have all the answers None of us this side of eternity will have all the answers when it comes to eschatology, which is why we ought to always approach this subject with a spirit of humility. We know that Jesus is going to come back, right? He is going to come back. That is for sure. How that will play out, we're not quite as sure. Now, speaking of Jesus coming back, Last week, I introduced you to another term, and that's the term parousia, P-A-R-O-U-S-I-A. Parousia simply means a coming or arrival. So when we connect parousia to Jesus, we see Jesus' second coming. That's a promise. He himself said to his disciples, I'm going to prepare a place for you, and I'm coming back. But again, as for the details, not all Christians agree. All right, so I'm going to take you back to last Sunday. So if you were here last Sunday, this will be a review. For those of you who are new, uh, here's what we talked about last Sunday. Last Sunday, we talked about another term called the rapture. And over the years, there have been movies and books about the rapture. I want you to know this. Not all Christians agree about the rapture, and not all Christians even agree that there will be what is often called a rapture. So I'll take a few minutes to give you a few of the different understandings. So when we think about the second coming of Jesus, there are those who believe that the rapture and the second coming of Jesus are two separate and distinct events that are separated by time. And there are those who understand that, that believe that, that say that there will be a period known as the tribulation. And this tribulation will be, for most people, a a seven-year period, a literal seven-year period. And there are those who believe that Jesus will rapture his church before this tribulation period. So if someone believes in that view, they would be called a pre-tribulationist. That Jesus will rapture his church prior to an intense period of tribulation, that he'll rapture his church up to heaven, and then at the end of the tribulation, he will come back with the saints to begin a millennial kingdom, which we'll talk about in just a minute. So there are those who believe in a pre-tribulational rapture. And then there are those who believe that Christ will rapture his church halfway through the tribulation. Three and a half years in, they're called the mid-tribulationist. That Jesus will rapture his church up halfway through the tribulation. They'll be in heaven. He'll come back with them for the millennium. And then there are those who believe that Jesus will rapture his church not at the beginning, not halfway through, and not quite at the end, but somewhere between the middle and the end, just before God's most intense wrath on earth. And that's called the pre-wrath view, that Jesus will come, rapture his church up just before the most intense portion. The saints will go to heaven and then come back down at the end of the tribulation to begin the millennial kingdom. 
Are you with me so far? Just nod. Nod anyway. Good. We're not done yet, though. There's another view about the tribulation. So there are those who believe in a post-tribulation. So there are those who believe in a pre-tribulational view, mid-tribulational view, a mid, or pre-wrath view, and then there are post-tribulationists. And those who hold to this view say that the rapture and the second coming are in essence the same event. They happen simultaneously, that Jesus will come for his church, the church will be raptured, meet him in the air, but then descend together on earth to begin the millennial kingdom. So this is a post-tribulational view of the rapture. Then again, there are Christians who don't believe that there'll be a rapture at all, the way it's defined by those who believe in the rapture. And so we got these four views about the tribulation. But if you noticed, in each of those views, I mentioned the understanding that they would all lead to a millennial kingdom. And so I want to introduce you now to the term millennial kingdom, the millennium. And the millennial kingdom basically describes this period of time where Christ will reign and it'll be marked by peace, peace on earth. And before we get to Mark chapter 13, I want to take you to Revelation 20. So turn in your Bibles to Revelation 20. And I'll read to you verses 1 and 2. And this is all a backdrop to Mark chapter 13. So Revelation 20, verses 1 and 2. It says here in verse 1, And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss, and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. That term, thousand years, is repeated several more times in Revelation chapter 20. And that thousand-year period is known as the millennial reign of Christ, marked by peace. But the nature of the millennial kingdom is not so easy to understand, which is why there are different views about the millennial kingdom. So I'm going to give you a brief overview of three general understandings of the millennium. And these are very general descriptions. I want you to know this, that within those three general views, there are subviews in each of those views. Uh, which expand the number of views. And so we're not going to go into all the details. So we're not getting deep into the weeds. So stick with me here. But this is important because this applies to Mark chapter 13. And so the millennial reign is understood as this period of time where Christ rules and is marked by peace. So there are three general views. And here are those views. You've got pre Millennialism, post-millennialism, and ah-millennialism. I'll put this. I'll leave this up here for a bit. If you've never seen these words, don't worry. It's okay. You're not alone. Don't think, oh, am I the only one who doesn't know these words? It's okay. If you've never heard those words, it's quite okay. If you've studied those. Words, wonderful. That's great too. But either way, I just want you to know there are godly people who love Jesus, who want to do God's will, who fall into any one of those three categories. So I'm going to briefly describe those three. I'll start with the pre-millennialist view. If you are a pre-millennialist, then here's what you believe. That Christ is going to return before the millennium. And that the millennium is a literal 1,000-year period. And 
premillennialists in general would read the book of Revelation very straightforwardly, not so figuratively. And so when it says a thousand years, they interpret it as literally a thousand years, that Christ will reign on earth with his church for a thousand years where Satan will be bound for a brief period of time at the end of the thousand years, Satan will be released, but then ultimately Christ will be victorious and then the eternal state will come. So whenever we talk about the new heavens and the new earth, just know this, that that comes after the millennium in that understanding. Premillennialism understands that that happens anytime after the tribulation period. So a premillennialist can be a pre-trib, mid-trib, pre-wrath, or post-trib. Does that make sense? <laughs> you with me? Just, just, just not. So you can be a premillennialist and be a pre-trib, mid-trib, pre-wrath, or post-rab proponent. Because those all come before the millennium. Christ returns before the millennium and establishes his kingdom on earth for a thousand years. That's the pre-millennial view of the millennium. The second view is the post-millennial view. And those who hold to this say that Christ is going to return after the millennium. But post-millennialists will read Revelation 20 and read a thousand-year period more figuratively, not literally. That is just a long period of time. And if you're a post-millennialist, you might not necessarily know exactly when the millennium started, but we are currently in the millennium, if you hold to that view. And so the millennium started sometime after the resurrection of Christ, and we might be in that millennium age right now. And the general understanding for a post-millennialist is this that increasingly the world will get better and the world will be Christianized. That the vast majority of the world will convert to Christianity in this golden age and that Christ will return at the end of that golden age known as the millennium. And that is why those who are proponents of pre, I'm sorry, post-millennialism, they really encourage people to uh, will get involved in, in government so that the governments can become Christianized and we would kind of return to a theocracy where God would be the ruler, like back in Israel. And so uh, the, the post-millennialist is very optimistic that the world is going to become Christianized through the church and then Christ will come at the end of the millennium to reign. That he is currently reigning from heaven through his church here on earth. Okay? So that's the post-millennial view. The third view is awe-millennialism. You're all doing so well, class. This is wonderful. Okay? Soon we're going to stand up and take a, a, a stretch break, all right? Awe-millennialism, if you know your English grammar, right, awe usually denotes something like not, right? No or against, right? Like agnostic or amoral awe. So awe millennialist, it's kind of a misnomer. I'll, I'll say why it's a misnomer. But the awe millennialist, similar to a post-millennialist, views the millennium figuratively. And that it started at the resurrection of Christ. And we are currently in... They wouldn't even call it a millennium, but a, we are in the period where uh, we are in this reign where Christ is reigning from heaven and that we are in this state of millennium and that Christ will come sometime in the future. And it's similar to post-millennialism, but dis distinct in some ways. So I'm not going to go into all the details. And, and by the way, as I said a few minutes ago, there are sub-views within these views. Okay. All that to say, if you study this subject enough, 
I encourage you, hold your view loosely. It's best to hold your view loosely. I would never go to my grave saying, I am this and I'm going to go to my grave with this view. Okay? Hold your view loosely because we just don't have all the answers. It's great to have views on this. If you've not studied this, it's a great subject to study. And again, there are godly people who just disagree with each other. That's why it's an in-house discussion. And there are godly people who have changed their own views on the subject. And by the way, in my ministry over the last several years, my views have adjusted. They've gone through tweaks. They've gone through changes. And that's okay. Because this side of eternity, we just don't have all the answers. Again, the millennium, no matter how you view it, is understood that it's a period marked by peace. Whether it's a thousand-year period of peace where Satan will be bound, whether it's a figurative period. But there are distinctions, right? Because if you are a pre-millennialist, the millennium has not happened yet, right? Because Christ has not returned yet. If you are a post or all-millennialist, then we are living in the millennial kingdom right now. But the reality is, no matter what, it's a period marked by peace. Someone once said this, the millennium is a thousand-year period of peace that Christians like to fight about. It's true. There's another story of a pastor who was talking with a fellow pastor who had a different view about uh, eschatology than he did. And this pastor, wanting to be charitable and show grace to the other pastor, said to his friend, we both want to serve God. You in your way, I in his way. <laughs> None of us has the answers, all the answers, this side of eternity. That's not to say that we should just believe that everyone's right. Okay, we can't all be right. But here's what's exciting. We will all be winners. No matter what. Here's what a all-millennialist, a post-millennialist, and a pre-millennialist who understands orthodox theology, they, this is what they can all agree upon. There are exceptions here within the subgroups, but if an all-millennialist and a post-millennialist and a pre-millennialist can all agree on the bodily and glorious return of Jesus Christ sometime in the future, they can and should fellowship with one another, and that's why we will all be winners. It's only if somebody says, you know what, Jesus is not going to return bodily. He's already here spiritually, and that was his return. That is not orthodox. That is uh, against Scripture. Okay. So as long as you hold to that Jesus is going to return sometime in the future bodily and reign here from earth, then we can all fellowship with one another. One commentator says this, and, and I, I am encouraged by what he writes. He says this, So far as I can see, Every Bible passage about the return of Christ is written for a practical purpose. Not to help us develop a history or a theory of history, but to motivate our obedience. It's always for obedience. It's not just head knowledge. So with that in mind, that was just an introduction, by the way. <laughs> That's the longest introduction in the history of sermons. Let's go to Mark 13 now. Mark 13. We're going to pick it up in verse 14. We looked at the first 13 verses last week. We'll pick it up in verse 14. I'm going to read to you all the way through verse 27. This will be involved, and so I'm going to go as slowly and as clearly and concisely as possible. Mark 13, starting in verse 14. When you see the abomination that causes desolation, standing where it does not belong. Let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. 
Let no one on the housetop go down or enter the house to take anything out. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that this will not take place in winter, because those will be days of distress unequaled from the beginning, when God created the world until now, and never to be equaled again. If the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Messiah, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. So be on your guard. I've told you everything ahead of time. But in those days, following that distress, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Okay, in verse 14, we saw a phrase, abomination that causes desolation. Some of your translations will say abomination of desolation. Some of your translations will say a sacrilegious object that causes desecration. What is all that about? Jesus is referring back to the Old Testament book of Daniel, chapter 9. So if you ever want to study eschatology in detail, you'll want to look at Daniel and Revelation and 2 Thessalonians and Mark 13, amongst other books. But Jesus is referring back to Daniel chapter 9. If you're taking notes, you can just write Daniel 9, verse 27. We won't turn there right now. I'm just going to give you a general understanding of this phrase, abomination of desolation. Abomination, it just means something that causes disgust. Something that causes hatred. It's offensive. Such an abomination. Desolation, it it basically describes a state of complete emptiness or destruction. And so Jesus described that an abomination that causes desolation will happen sometime in the future. He's referring back to Daniel chapter 9, where Daniel prophesied that a future leader would make a treaty with the people of Israel. And that this treaty would last for a period of seven years. And that's why you have that understanding of the tribulation. This treaty will last for seven years, but that the ruler, halfway through that treaty, three and a half years, that's why you have those who believe in a mid-trib view, that Daniel prophesied that halfway through this treaty, the ruler, he will basically, he will put an end to the sacrifices in the temple. He will put an end to all the offerings. And that he would desecrate the temple by setting up some offensive object in the temple. And this would continue for three and a half years. This is where, again, it gets even more complicated, Some Christians will say, okay, this has already happened in our history, or it hasn't happened yet, okay? But if you go back into history, here's what you'll find. In 70 AD, which I mentioned last week, in 70 AD, there was a Jewish revolt against the Roman government. And so the Jewish people revolted against the government. The Roman army entered the city of Jerusalem and destroyed the city along with the temple in the city. 
And so my understanding is that when Jesus was speaking with his disciples, he was partially referring to that destruction of the temple in 70 AD. You following? That when he was talking with his disciples, that was before 70 AD, that he was referring to the destruction of the temple. That's why he said here, it's going to be devastating, especially for those who are pregnant, right? Because they can't flee that fast. But at the same time, he was also looking ahead to our future. Because he says in the same discussion that you will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds, right? Has he come yet? He's not come yet, right? Otherwise, the world would have seen. And so, to the best of my understanding, here's how we can understand Mark chapter 13. And hopefully this will make sense. If you're taking notes, you can write down these words. Already, but not yet. Already, but not yet. Meaning, Jesus was partially speaking about the physical temple that was going, that was going to be destroyed. It was, but he's also foreshadowing his coming again, which hasn't happened yet. Is Jesus reigning? Yes, he's reigning. But he will come and reign bodily as well. And so it's the already, but not yet. As Christians, right? Look at it this way. If you have Jesus in your life, okay, you are saved, right? Salvation began at the point of giving your life to Christ. And we are being sanctified. But one day in the future, we will be glorified, right? And so it's the already but not yet understanding. And so I know this is a little bit complicated, but I'm going to pause here, and I want to, I want to give you some encouragement, all right? So no matter how confusing this might get, and by the way, if you remember nothing else from today's message, remember these next words, okay? Leave with these next words, although we're not done yet. The future is in God's hands. That we can have confidence in. The future is in God's hands. Some people love to study eschatology, and that's wonderful. If you want to have a discussion with me afterwards, wonderful. We'll have a wonderful discussion. Some of you, you're like, just get me to heaven. <laughs> wonderful. The future is in God's hands. We can be absolutely confident about that. We may not have all the answers right now, but that is okay. What we do have is Jesus. So we're going to continue on now into verse 28. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that it is near right at the door. Truly I say to you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Now, in verse 28, Jesus talks about the fig tree. Fig trees can be seen all throughout Israel. Do you remember in a previous message, I said that we share certain things in common. California is similar to Israel. We share the same climate and the same geography, which is why we see a lot of fig trees in California. You know, one of our church members regularly on Sundays will bring me a bag of figs from their own yard. And they're the perfect fuel for between sermons, between uh, services. Because after first service, I'm tired. So I need a little pick-me-up, a little fig or something. I'll even take a fig Newton, okay? <laughs> and so figs are wonderfully delicious. And one gardening expert said this. If you could select only one fruit tree for your Southern California yard, 
the fig tree would be the ideal choice for several reasons. It produces delectable fruit. It is simple to grow. It is attractive in most landscapes. And it can be pruned to accommodate even the smallest of spaces and containers. Wow. Makes me want to go out and buy a fig tree right now. In this passage, Jesus used the parable of the fig tree to talk about the destruction of the temple. Now remember, that is not just spiritual or figurative. It happened in history. You can go back and read your history books. The temple was destroyed. And he pointed to this parable of the fig tree to tell that the temple would be destroyed. At the same time, he was foreshadowing future events that have yet to happen. Already, but not yet. And then he says one of the most important things that I want us to take away from chapter 13. About that day or hour, no one knows. Not the angels, not even the Son himself. Only the Father. Last week I mentioned that there was a book released in 1988. The title of that book was 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1988. 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1988. It was a book written by a NASA engineer. Smart fellow. He was so confident, he was quoted as saying, only if the Bible is in error am I wrong. Well, I know this much. The Bible is not in error, but he was wrong. He was wrong about the date, but more importantly and more seriously, he was wrong about even trying to predict the date. Because Jesus himself said, I don't know. Only the Father knows. Now, at this point, you might ask the question, well, how could Jesus not know? Isn't Jesus God? And doesn't God know everything? How could Jesus not know his own return? Yes, Jesus is God. But also, man. He was 100% God, 100% man. He is 100% God, 100% man. Not 50% and 50%. At his incarnation, he took on humanity 100%. That's why in Philippians chapter 2, we read these words. You can follow along up here in verses 6 through 8. Paul says, Who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even on a cross. He is 100% God, 100% man. But while on earth, Jesus did not take advantage of his deity. You know, when we think of Christ's dual nature, there are times when he walked the earth where he operated within the limits of his humanity. Did Jesus get hungry? Yes. Thirsty? Yes. Tired? Yes. Did he grow physically? Yes. He grew in wisdom and in stature. So he operated within the limits of his humanity. Don't you think for a moment, when Jesus was hungry, don't you think that he could have, if he wanted to, command a juicy steak to appear? Could he have done that? Absolutely. Why do I know that? Well, when the thousands were hungry and the disciples brought just a couple fish and a couple loaves of bread, Jesus fed the thousands 
with just those few items. But when it came to himself, he always operated within the limits of his humanity. I mean, that's the lesson for us. When it came to himself, he always put others first. I'm going to guess that Jesus, after he performed the miracle of feeding the thousands, I'm going to guess that he probably didn't even eat any of that food that he miraculously created. And if he did, I guarantee you this much, he would have been the last person in line. He always operated within the limits of his humanity selflessly. That's why in Act 2 of Mark's Gospel, he, he encouraged the disciples by saying, if you want to be great, become a servant. Learn to be a servant of others. And so Jesus humbled himself. Certainly, he could have if he wanted to know when he was going to return. But that was for the Father and only for the Father. So if Jesus is 100% God and 100% man, and he didn't know when he would return, when he talked to his disciples on the Mount of Olives, who are we to even try to predict when he would ever come back or when he would come back? Our job is to be ready. And speaking of jobs, let's look at the remaining verses in this chapter. Starting with verse 33. Be on guard. Be alert. You do not know when that time will come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with their assigned task, their assigned jobs, and tells them one tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. If the doorkeeper's job is to watch, and be alert. It does no good if that worker falls asleep, even for 30 seconds. The idea is this. You and I, you free church, you and I, we have a job. It's a task. It's a responsibility. Or, better yet, it's a mission. The mission of the church at large is to make disciples. Here at our church, we've packaged it into a saying. And on the count of three, for those of you who know that mission statement, I would love for you to say it along with me. For those of you who are newer to our church, I hope you will hear this mission statement. But more importantly, I hope that you will see this mission statement lived out in our lives so that it will be part of your nature. Okay, on the count of three our mission statement. One, two, three. To know Jesus and make him known. That is our job. That is our mission. Everything we do is subservient to that mission. To know Jesus and to make him known. Over the years, groups of people, sadly, who have longed for Jesus They've sold everything and they followed a leader up a mountain and they just waited and sat for their Messiah, only to be disappointed. Last week I mentioned back in 1980, I know that some of you were not born in 1980. Some of you were long born before 1980. But in 1980, a pastor here in Southern California, a pastor, I respected greatly. He made a prediction, and looking back, I, I think many people realize that it was a, a, a big error in judgment. But he made a prediction 
1980, when he wrote a book that the rapture would happen before the end of 1981. And so on the eve of 1982, New Year's Eve 1981, he gathered with his church. Many, many people gathered together in their sanctuary. And they gathered together waiting to be raptured. They weren't expecting to go back to their homes that night. But when 1981 ended and 82 came and the rapture didn't happen, they went back home and many were disillusioned. I mention that because if we knew the exact day and time that Jesus would return, and we don't, but if we knew the exact day and time that he would return. Wouldn't it be better to spend every last second talking with our family members, our friends, our co-workers, our neighbors about Jesus? Wouldn't it be better to do that than to just wait Our mission is to know Jesus, to know him so well that we can't help but make him known to those around us. We may, we may not have all the answers that we'd like to have about the future. What we have is Jesus. I'm going to leave you with these final words from one author. This author writes, An unknown future with a known Savior is better than a known future without a Savior. An unknown future. I don't know what tomorrow holds. Many in our church family are suffering physically right now. They're ill. They're recovering from surgeries. Many have faced difficulties. We don't know what the future holds. But an unknown future with a known Savior is better than a known future without that Savior. That should drive us. That should motivate us. That should encourage us. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Your word is so powerful. Thank you for speaking loudly through your word today. Lord, help us to know Jesus and to make him known. I pray that we would be faithful to that mission today, tomorrow, and every day until Jesus comes again. We pray these things in his name. Amen.